So our next, our last session is called Starting a New Life. Now, if you had two options between changing the past or reliving the past or changing the future, which would you choose? Reliving the past or changing the future? I'll tell you, there's one thing that I really, really wish I could do, and I wish I could relive high school. I wish I could relive high school. And I don't know, I don't know if high school was <laughs> some people like shaking your heads. No way. <laughs> there's so many key moments where I just kind of felt like, man, if I would have just done that one thing differently, I'd be, it, it would have changed everything. But I tell you, it was after high school. I was about 19 years old, and that's where I really committed my life to Christ. I had finished high school. I was two years into some. Uh, I was two years into college, and I made that decision. God, I want to make a change in my life. I've never committed my life to you completely, and I wonder what what it would mean if I just if I tried everything that I could just to say Jesus. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And I'll tell you, I can't relive high school, but I can tell you from 19 onwards, it completely changed the, dir the direction of my life. And I can happily say I wouldn't regret, I don't regret what I've done from 19 onwards. And um, Jin Ha often reminds me, you know, I'm glad that you didn't leave, live your life differently in high school as well, because I wouldn't have met you otherwise, which is a true statement. And so God in his wisdom knows. But today... I want to talk about what it means to make a decision to live a new life. We're going to be talking about baptism and why this is an important part of the biblical narrative. In the Bible, it talks about baptism. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. In the Bible, it talks about baptism meaning several things, and I'm just going to highlight five of them today. Firstly, baptism is about a union with Christ or a connection with Christ. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn them to John chapter 13, and we're going to start in verse 3. John chapter 13. It's the fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. For those of you who have those white Bibles, I invite you to turn to page 866. 866. John chapter 13. Verses 3 to 10, and we're going to be looking at page 866. <clears throat> Notice how the story begins. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and, were, and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had around him. So this story starts out with Jesus saying, I have been given all power and all authority. And the question is, 
what is Jesus going to do with all that power? And the story says he starts washing and serving people. He starts washing their feet. Pretty incredible, the character of Jesus. So Jesus goes one by one until he reaches Peter. And if you look at verse 6 to 8, you see how Jesus respond, or you see how Peter responds to Jesus. He says, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, Peter protested, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Now there's a cultural element, um, I believe, that is taking place here, where Peter recognizes there's someone that's greater than him that's about to serve him, and his pride cannot handle it. Because he knows he isn't worthy, and he says, Jesus, I cannot accept this. In Korean culture, we also like to say no. Um, Korean culture is a very gift-oriented culture, and so whenever you visit somebody that you haven't seen for a while, you bring a gift. Anytime you come to someone's home, you bring a gift. Um, anytime you leave someone's home, the host also gives a gift. Very gift-giving. So you can imagine the stress that happens in our house. I'm, I'm thinking, okay... My my uh, parents are coming into town, and I have to prepare a gift for them. So I put together like a packet, and I put in money. And what what ends up happening is I go to them, and I say, here you go. And they say, no, 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 no. And they give it back. Like, no, no, here you go. No, 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 no. And this goes back and forth like three or four times. And then they pull out money of their own. They're like, here you go. And I go, no, 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 no. And it goes back and forth. It is a polite thing to say no because you're acknowledging, you're inconveniencing the other person, right? But in my Western mind, I'm just thinking, just do away with all the inconveniences. Nobody bring gifts, right? That, that's just easier. But here, what happens is, Peter is telling Jesus, I cannot receive this gift from you because I am inconveniencing you. Jesus says something profound here. He says, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And that's a very, very strong statement. Because what Jesus is communicating is me washing your feet, me cleansing you communicates my care for you. And if you reject that care, it is a rejection of who I am. There are two reasons why it's a rejection of Christ. One, it either communicates we don't need help. And the reality was Peter's feet were dirty. They needed to be cleansed. And Jesus is communicating my cleansing does something for you that you cannot do for yourself. You need my cleansing. And if you reject my cleansing, you reject me. In Peter's case, I don't think he was responding out of pride in terms of, I don't think he was saying, I'm too good for your cleansing. I think it was the opposite. Peter is responding out of insecurity. He genuinely feels, I'm not worthy of this kind act. I often say this to people, it takes humility to be loved. It takes humility to be loved. I'm not talking about humility in terms of humble pie, where you need to realize how much of a terrible person you are in order for you to receive love. That's not what I'm talking about. Humility, I believe, in its genuineness or in its most genuine, accurate sense is when somebody actually gains an accurate sense of their worth. And when Jesus is saying, I need to wash you, he's saying, 
I need to wash you because you are valuable to me. I don't know how many of you maintain valuable things that you have. For me, it's my car. And because I value my car, I wash it, right? And every time I wash it, it adds just a little bit more value because it just shines a little bit more. It's like, yeah, there it is, right? I don't clean things that I don't care about. I don't clean my garden tools ever because I don't care about them. I don't value them. They're dirty. And here when Jesus says, Peter, I need to cleanse you, what he's communicating is, you are so incredibly valuable to me that I want to invest my energy in you. Peter felt like he wasn't good enough, and it required humility. It required an awakening inside Peter, recognizing his own worth, so that he can respond to the goodness of God and realize how God valued him as well. Being washed connected Peter to Jesus, bringing about a new appreciation for himself and Christ. It would have then taught Peter to respond in gratitude, right? That's where true gratitude comes from. So Peter, if you look at verse 9, realizes what Jesus is saying, and he says, then wash my hands and head as well, Lord, not just my feet. And he says, Lord, give me a bath, right? And verse 10 is where the true meaning comes out. Jesus replied, a person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. And Jesus was talking about Judas there. So here's where the true meaning of this interaction comes out. Being washed by Jesus represents this complete cleansing. It wasn't just a physical cleansing. It was a spiritual one. Jesus wanted to communicate the cleansing that I give you means that I'm giving you forgiveness. I'm giving you mercy. You see, Jesus knows that when we truly feel forgiven, there comes an awareness of the presence of God. I don't know how many times you feel like your mess-ups or your failures or your sin separates you from God. Where there's a sense of God, I just feel like I'm not good enough and therefore I can't feel you in my life. And what, what Jesus is communicating here is he's saying, I provide you and everyone forgiveness. That's why I died on the cross. And what inevitably happens is as we realize our mistakes do not separate us from Jesus, there comes this awareness of his very presence. God, I feel you because I know what I've done doesn't separate me from you. Baptism a washing of water symbolizes forgiveness and a union to Christ. Secondarily, baptism symbolizes a union to Christ's church. Notice here in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to the church. There are two observations that I'd like to make about this uh, passage here. The first one is, when people, in the, uh, when people in the Bible were baptized, they were baptized into a church, into a congregation. So when you join yourself to Christ, you are inevitably joining yourself to his body or his church. Notice what it says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. When we baptize ourselves into Christ, we are joining his body. We are called the very body of Christ. 
I think sometimes it's easy to make spirituality a private thing, but over and over in scripture, the point of religion is to teach us how to be a community that connects with one another and then shares the love of God to the community around us. It's a very communal thing because love is best experienced in community, not in isolation. The second thing that I want to highlight is that generally, baptism was a public declaration of a personal decision. And that's why people were added to the church daily. When they were baptized, they were baptized in public. They joined a community. So thirdly, baptism is a statement that you believe in the resurrection and the teachings of Christ. If you look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 19-20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So baptism, uh, baptism is a commitment. Um, it's committing yourself to follow Jesus. It's committing yourself to follow Jesus' teachings. Um, and we've kind of covered many of them over the last um, six weekends. If you look at Romans chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 8, it talks about the meaning or the symbolism of baptism when it comes to the teaching of the death and resurrection of Christ. Notice it says, Just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in a newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So when we get baptized, it's a statement of saying, I believe in the death of Jesus. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe it will happen for me personally. So when we go into that watery uh, when we go step into the waters and get dunked under the water or immersed in that water um, it symbolizes this watery grave and as someone comes up out of the water it represents that resurrection or that new life that jesus himself experienced and so there's significant symbolism here baptism is that statement i believe there's something beyond the grave i believe in the second coming of christ i believe in the resurrection not only is there this um, symbolism that has to do with a physical event, it's also, uh, baptism also communicates this spiritual symbolism that takes place in our hearts. Baptism is this ongoing commitment of saying, God, I die to myself and I live for you. I prioritize what you want rather than what I want. So going back to that verse in uh, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in a newness of life. And there's that last part right there that talks about the spiritual significance of baptism. It's supposed to give us this freedom, this freedom from self-destructive behavior that is self-centered and selfish. So the question is, how does God give us freedom if we die to ourselves? And I want to highlight here a difference. In different Eastern religion, in different Eastern religions, there's a lot of talk about self-denial. 
It's, it's, a, it's a very virtuous thing to deny self. And so um, I, I've talked to so many people who are non-Christian who say, look, every religion is essentially the same, right? Just deny yourself. And that's where you achieve um, the greatest amount of freedom because you lose interest in specific things. So if I, if I say to myself, I really like ice cream, I really like cookies. If I want freedom from ice cream and cookies, just say, I'm not going to eat those things anymore. And that's where that freedom comes from. But what I want to highlight is the Bible teaches something very, very different. It doesn't highlight just self-denial. What it's saying is that self-denial leads to a new life. And that's what's virtuous. The new life, not so much the denial. The challenge is to get to the new life, we do need to experience or practice denial. So Romans chapter 8. I just realized I got ahead of myself a little bit. Romans chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 12 to 18. Romans chapter 8 verses 12 to 18, and it's going to talk about the meaning of where this freedom comes, or it, it talks about the meaning, and it talks about what it means to experience that freedom. So Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 18, and for those of you who have your white Bibles, this is going to be page 909. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read verses 12 to 18. Page 909. So verse 12. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. There are a few things that I want to highlight in this passage. First, it says, deny yourself, deny your sinful nature, put to death those things. And what inevitably happens is, as we embark on this journey of following after God, there are going to be moments where we realize God is asking us to make a change in our lives. And as we try to make those changes, it's not an easy thing. It's a difficult thing. And so what Paul is talking about here in Romans is he's saying, as you embark on this journey, there's going to be a time where you experience fear because of failure. Does that make sense? You're going to experience fear because of failure. And here what he says is, as you try to deny yourself, the Spirit of God comes in and brings in this new perception, this new worldview that you are not you don't have to worry about fear. You don't have to worry about being a slave. You are called a child of God. You're called a child of God. See, fear does something that's incredibly damaging to us. Fear drives us to bondage. Fear causes us to lose hope. Fear causes us to give up. But if you keep reading verse 16 and 17, notice it says that we get to experience freedom from fear. When we are convinced that God considers us his children. 
I don't know if you've ever wondered what it means to have what it means to be called a child of God, what it means to find security in that new title of being called a child of God. The text goes into a little bit more about what it means to be a child of God, what it means to be identified um, to be part of the family of Christ. Going back to verse 16 and 17, it talks about the importance of suffering, the importance of suffering. So I'm just going to repeat verse 17. It says, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. So the prerequisite to be being called a child of God is to be able to be willing to experience suffering. I love the way that Paul describes it this way. If there's ever a time where you've wanted to make a change in your life, I love the realism that Paul uses. Or I love that descriptive word where he, he just says, look, you're going to suffer. You're going you're to feel like this is very difficult. So here's my question. If being a child of God requires suffering, what motivates perseverance? What is it in our minds where we can just cling to those ideas as we're suffering where we can say, God, I just need you. I need you to give me strength through this. The first thing I want to highlight is the fact that the Spirit of God does call us children of God. We can make mistakes and there is no rejection. There are times where my kids are really difficult, if I'm honest. There are times where I want to sell my kids to the circus, right? They're in the house and doing all sorts of things, and I was just like, ah, you're going to make some money off of you. But the point here is God is saying, you are my children, and even if you make a mistake, there is still security there. So in the moment where you're experiencing suffering, when in that moment where you're experiencing difficulty, know that there isn't rejection. If you didn't have to fear the consequences of your actions, would it motivate you to try harder? You know, I'll tell you what, when I was trying to learn how to ride a bike, if I knew I wasn't going to fall and hurt my legs and scrape my body, I would, I would have tried a lot harder. But it's the fear of consequence that keeps me from trying. And here what God does is he removes the fear of consequence. Here's the second thing that I cling to when I'm suffering. The fact that suffering is required Suffering is required. What helps the pain? Knowing that it's a part of the growth. Uh, knowing that it's a part of growth. I don't know if you've seen that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger YouTube video um, where he disguises himself as a guy named Howard and he goes, into, he goes into Gold's Gym. And his picture is all over Gold's Gym. But what he does is he wears his hat and then he wears a fake mustache. <laughs> and everybody knows it's Arnold, right? But he's just going around and it's this hilarious video. And he goes to this person who's like trying to push up weight and they're really struggling with the rep. They're like, oh, and then Howard goes up to them at eye level and he says, when it burns, it grows. That was a horrible Arnold Schwarzenegger impression. But, but it's hilarious where he's just saying, listen, it'll, you'll get stronger, but it's painful right now. But you have to go through it. If you don't experience pain, you're not going to experience gain. Suffering is a prerequisite to glory. Notice what it says here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I just realized I probably sounded more like Donald Trump than I did Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> anyway, Philippians 3.10, Paul writes, 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul here recognizes, yes, I want to experience resurrection. I want to experience new life. I want to experience strength in my life. Well, how do I experience that? Be willing to go through his sufferings. Paul wanted suffering because he knew what it would lead to. See, in the midst of our suffering, we can cling to the fact that, number one, it's required. But number two, God is there in our suffering with us. God doesn't ask us to do something that he himself is not willing to do. And so there are times where in the Bible where it says, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, right? Jesus suffered himself. So when we cling or when we cling to God in suffering, we can know he is going through it too. He has gone through it too. He goes through it with us. You know, as a matter of fact, the verse says, we are called children of God if we suffer, right? We identify with God in suffering. There are many times where I've asked myself the question, what does it mean to identify myself as a Christian? Is it because I experience the power of God, the grace of God, the goodness of God, the glory of God? And certainly those things happen, and we can say, because that has happened, I feel connected to God because he has blessed me because he has given me power, because he has done things in my life. But here, what Paul says is, he says, you are identified as children of God if you suffer. And there's something that's special that takes place that as you go through your own difficulty, God kind of sees what we go through and he says, yeah, that's my child. That's my child. I don't know if you've ever read through the news highlights where you just kind of spend a few moments and I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes I just kind of get discouraged where I'll read the, read the highlights and I just kind of have to take a break from it. And I can't read the news anymore because it's just there's so many bad things that are happening in the world. But can you imagine being God in heaven? He gets to see all the suffering, all the pain, all the corruption, all the death in real time every single day. And he gets to see all the bad stuff that doesn't make the news. And God is saying, if there's one person that suffers in the universe, it's me. And so when he looks at the humanity and what they're going through, he makes a decision. What am I going to do? Because they're killing themselves down on planet Earth. God becomes flesh. Jesus comes to planet Earth. He lives for humanity. He serves humanity. He shares his love with humanity. And that love is misinterpreted, and so they kill him, and they crucify him. God suffers. And what God is looking for are people who will do the same, who will follow suit, who see all the suffering that's going on in the world and make that decision. I, too, will give. I, too, will serve, even at the cost of myself. And as I suffer for good... God then says, yeah, you get my mission. You get who I am. You are my child. You know, a lot of times in Christianity, we talk about all the bad things that we've given up. But when you look at the life of Jesus, he never gave up bad things. He only gave up good things. And genuine suffering is about the willingness to give up good for the sake of humanity. That's what suffering is about. Notice here, in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, we're in Romans chapter 8. 
If you go back a few chapters, Romans chapter 1, verse 4. In Romans chapter 1, it introduces Jesus. It says here in verse 4. And he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what I want to highlight in this verse is, this is the one place in the Bible that I know of where it actually gives the reason behind the title. You ever wonder why Jesus is called the Son? There's so much debate around this. Oh, Jesus is the Son because he's created. Or Jesus is the Son because God is higher than he is. And it gives all, people have all sorts of theories as to why Jesus is called the Son. But if you look at Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it gives a definition or a reason why he's given that title. And notice it says, Jesus is called the Son because he was resurrected. Do you see that in the verse? Jesus is called the Son because he is resurrected. And what I'm going to say is, any time in the New Testament where Jesus, where his death and his resurrection are mentioned, there's this identification that comes where God says, you are my Son. Here's an example. Luke chapter... Oh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says here, When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So notice here, Jesus goes through that physical and spiritual exercise of dying and then coming back to life. And then a voice, an audible voice from heaven goes, you're my son. That's what makes you my son. The fact that you're willing to die and the fact that you've come back to life. That's why Jesus is called the son. Sorry, I've just said that like five times. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. This is a story of the Mount of Transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, verse 28 to 36. This is page 832. Page 832, Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Here's what it says. About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes become dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Now, other translations will say they spoke with him about his suffering, or they spoke with him about his decease, depending on what translation you're you're, you're looking at. So notice here, Moses and Elijah talk to Jesus about the fact that he's going to die, and he's going to come back to life. Verse 32, Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. Jumping down to verse 35. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So think about that for a moment. Once again, the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection is mentioned, the fact that he's going to suffer and he's going to come back to life, and then God says, Yup. You are my son. This happens another time, but I think I've given enough, um, shared enough verses here. 
So baptism is talking about the willingness to suffer, the resurrection, the new life that takes place, and that's what means you belong to the family of God. God says, yep, these people have suffered. They understand what it's about. You are my people. So in review, <clears throat> baptism is about a union with Christ. Baptism is about a union to Christ's church. Baptism is a statement that you believe in the resurrection and the teachings of Christ. Baptism means you're willing to die to self and live for Jesus. And baptism means you belong to God's family. There are many forms of baptism that are practiced today. I've listed three of them. Infant baptism, sprinkling, baptism by immersion. There are different pictures on the internet like baptism by flower petals or baptism by jumping into the snow because you're immersed by water. You know, it doesn't say what form of water you need to take. There are lots of different forms of, of baptism. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, it says there's one faith, one Lord, one baptism. So what does baptism look like in the Bible? So we're going to look at how Jesus was baptized. In Mark chapter 1, verse 9, it says, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Jesus was baptized in the river Jordan. Notice what it says here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. So Jesus himself was immersed. In Acts chapter 8, verse 38, there's a story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And it says, so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and, eunuch, uh, Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. So notice here, once again, there's another example of baptism taking place in the New Testament. It required a large body of water. John chapter 3, verse 23 it says, now John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and they came and were baptized. So this is one verse that actually gives a reason behind why they would baptize in large body or uh, why they would baptize because there were large bodies of water. So baptism by immersion was practiced by the church for centuries. And if we look at early church architecture, we can actually see how baptism was practiced. So if you look at the remains of uh, the Church of Mary, what you see here is that there's this baptistry. And if you notice, uh, it would have held a large volume of water. There's steps going into uh, the baptistry so that people could be immersed. And then there's steps going out. Also, if you look at the Basilica of St. John, you see something very similar there where there's a baptistry. The final example of church architecture is at Pisa. And... Uh, if you go to that famous church complex, uh, you'll see that bell tower that's leaning. And what you discover is next to the cathedral, there's a circular building where inside you find an octagonal baptistry. Oops, an octagonal baptistry that's about three feet deep. And uh, the church used these baptistries because they practiced immersion over and over and over again. So what I want to highlight is that baptism is about making a decision it's about being mature enough to make that decision god i want to give you my life so people often ask that question what about rebaptism um what do i uh, is there ever a time where it's appropriate to be rebaptized so i want to say yes um 
it is appropriate to be rebaptized if I haven't been baptized by immersion. It is also appropriate to be rebaptized if I've made if I have made a decision to leave Christ. And uh, I often think of baptism kind of like a marriage. And uh, there are, there are times where uh, couples fight, um, but just because they fight, it doesn't require them to be remarried, right? Remarriage happens when somebody makes a decision, I'm going to divorce you, and then you know what? Let's actually come back together and get remarried. That's when rebaptism takes place. So if, if there's ever a decision to leave Christ where you're saying, God, I do not want you in my life anymore, and then there was a point in time where one would make the decision, okay, I do want to restart a relationship with you. Finally, rebaptism is also appropriate if I've learned a new truth. Notice here in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 5. It says, Paul came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Then they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So just as a review, rebaptism is appropriate if I haven't been baptized by immersion. It's appropriate if I have made a decision to leave Christ. It's appropriate if I have learned a new truth. But finally, it is not appropriate when I sin but stay with Jesus. In other words, there are times where we make mistakes. Rebaptism is not a requirement in, those, in, in that area. So what do I need to do to be baptized? There are a few texts in closing. Acts chapter 2 verse 38 says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized. In other words, there's a period in time where someone makes the decision, God, I want to live my life differently. Then, when that step is taken, it's appropriate to then be baptized. Mark chapter 16, verse 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. So the requirement for baptism is belief, recognizing that salvation exists for me. The fact that Jesus died and rose again, and it's a personal thing. I acknowledge that. I believe in that. Finally, in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19-20, it says, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And so baptism or a, require, or a um, preparation for baptism is when you make that decision, I want to follow the teachings of Christ. At this time, um, we're going to... How we're going to pass out some decision cards. As we've been going through these meetings, we want to give you an opportunity to be able to uh, respond. And I don't want you to feel pressure like, oh, no, there's a card that's coming my way and I have to fill it out. This is for those of you who genuinely want to respond. And so this is just providing an invitation. And um, I just invite you to prayerfully consider, God, what do you want me to do today? And so I'm going to invite you to spend a thoughtful moment. Read through these decisions. And what this does is it provides an opportunity for myself, for Jinha, for the other leaders of the church to be able to make sure that you're able to 
um, follow through with the decision that you would like to do. And we're just helping guide and facilitate that decision. So if you look at those decisions, I'll walk through it with you. If you'd like Bible studies, you've been going through these different sessions, you've learned new truths, and for you, you're kind of like, yeah, I want to explore more of what the Bible teaches. Feel free to tick that box, and we'll make sure and get in touch with you, and we can make sure that you can continue to learn about God's Word. That next box there is, I would like to get baptized. As you've listened to this presentation, You've talked about what it means to be baptized, what it symbolizes, the significance of it, and you've never been baptized, and you would like to. Feel free to tick that box, and we'll make sure that we can guide you through that decision. Thirdly, maybe there's a time where you have been baptized already, but you feel convicted. God, I need to recommit my life to you. I need to be rebaptized. Feel free to tick that third box.